trust you in the valley dark as well as in the light knowing you will always lead me your will is always right i know god makes no mistake he leads in every path i take along the way that's leading me to That others would see my life and know that God makes no mistake. And when someday in heaven above I see His dear face, may I then be counted faithful as a runner in this race. Now I'm trusting. To show me the way in His righteousness, He guides me as I seek to please Him day by day. I know God makes no mistake; He leads in every path I take along the way that's leading me to home. Though at times my heart would. Let's take our Bibles tonight. Turn over to the book of 1 Thessalonians tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. It was just uh, Wednesday night. We were in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and read uh, some verses there. At least uh, Brother Rigo did as he preached and proclaimed the word. And that was exciting. We enjoyed that. Tonight we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 10. Basically the whole chapter again. And uh, don't worry, 10 verses isn't too bad, even though it's a whole chapter. We're not reading one of them Psalms right in the middle there. You know the one I'm talking about, 119. All right, let's go ahead and begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you from, for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. 
For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves shew of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye trusted, uh, how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, I want to focus on verse 9. It says, For they themselves shew of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The living and true God. On the April 8th, 1966 cover of Time magazine, there was a very disturbing question displayed. Is God dead? Is God dead? The quote came from an article written by the renowned 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche became well known for his blatant declaration that God was dead. He made it very clear. He was born in 1844 and he died in 1900. But during his lifetime, he wrote a number of critical texts on religion, morality, contemporary culture, philosophy, and even science. Having declared God dead, he seems to have suggested that the acceptance of the death of God will also involve the ending of, an accepted, the ending of accepted standards of morality and of purpose. And that's very important. Again, he suggested that the acceptance of the death of God will also involve the ending of accepted standards of morality and of purpose. Again, without the former and accepted faith-based standards, society is threatened by what would be considered a nihilistic situation where people's lives are not particularly constrained by considerations of morality or particularly guided by any faith-related sense of purpose. Therefore, he wrote several of his works in the, 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 the presumption that man must find a new mode of being. If there is no God and that God does not govern our affairs, and we are not in any way indebted to Him, or serve Him, or our morality is not based upon His Word and Him, then there's going to have to be something else. If we're not going to put God there, then something else has to be put in His place. That's basically what he's saying. He goes on to say that given the unbelievability of the God hypothesis, Nitschke himself seemed to favor the creation of a new set of values. Here's what he suggested. Faithful to the earth. Faithful to the earth. If God is not alive, if God is not real, if God does not exist, then we're going to need something else to be faithful to. Something else that will govern our behavior. Something else that will dictate our direction. Something else that will give us purpose for living. Well, faithful to the earth. Again, there's got to be something. There's got to be someone greater than man. That's just the way it is. Otherwise, there would be no restraint. And there must be restraint. There must be some restraint or there'd be no social order. So, he visualized a new order which would elevate the earth itself. So man's devotion then would be directed 
at the creation rather than the creator then. Mankind would find a sense of responsibility in caring for and preserving the earth instead. He would be careful to do nothing to harm or hurt the earth in which he inhabits or the inhabitants of the earth. I think that sounds pretty familiar to me. Nietzsche's philosophy was pointed out by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. Turn over there in Romans chapter 1. This is nothing new. Nietzsche may have felt that he had cornered the market, that he had somehow came up with some kind of ideology that really made sense. But the reality is, is that from the beginning of time, mankind has continued to try to find someone or something bigger than himself to worship instead of God, his creator. And in most cases, every single case, not most, every single case, man has chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator. So the creation, there's nothing new in worshiping the creation. Paul the Apostle addresses it. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. What the Bible is telling us is that by what is made, what has been created, we can see the Godhead. We will be able to recognize the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in that which he created. It goes on to say, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, verse 21, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. What we are to understand is that mankind would turn to idolatry. Once again, the creation versus the creator. Going on, he says in verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the the creature more than the creator. The creator who is blessed forever, he says, amen. Now again, this philosophy wasn't only pointed out by Paul to the Romans, but this particular philosophy has been emphatically embraced by our generation today. You know, we continue to note the attacks on the reality of God, and we watch as Mother Earth and her well-being has become the greatest responsibility of mankind today. The ozone, global warming, earth, and animal rights activism has become the vogue of our day. It's faddish, it's popular, it's socially accepted. And that brings me to this point. Christians should not confuse stewardship of God's creation with being green. You better be careful with being green. See, those that embrace this green philosophy do so, and you have to understand this, they do so from a worldview that is rooted in the premise that there is no God. The founders of this particular green thing are not those that have tremendous faith in Christ, although there are those that believe in Christ that have adopted their philosophies, but the fact is is that being green was founded by people who would say to you, there is no God. Therefore, there's something else to worship. 
something bigger than man himself, his world, his globe. The foundation of that belief or that structure is rooted in atheism and unbelief. Now, the institution of environmental rules and regulations are just one way to restrain mankind. One way to bring order to a society without God. The earth and its preservation is based, uh, is, is the basis of a number, I mean, there's all kind of regulatory agencies today. There's all kind of laws that have been enacted to somehow elevate the earth, to somehow put restraints on mankind so that we know how to act toward our mother earth. Nitsky understood that without God, mankind would need something or someone bigger than themselves in which to serve. And if God doesn't exist, then nature or earth will do. I believe today that we have no need for some alternative authority. I don't believe we need some new foundation or new set of values by which to govern our lives and morality. Uh, Maybe you do, but I don't. Our purpose in life need not be found in protecting or preserving the earth which we live upon. Now, again, understand me. I I believe that you and I, as Bible believers, need to take measures to protect our environment, to be responsible with the resources that God has given us. However, be very careful that we are not guilty of elevating our creation above the Creator And find ourselves in allegiance to an object instead of a person, God. They be real careful. And may I say, we need to be very careful with our youngsters today, our, our children. They're being indoctrinated with this idea that Mother Earth is who we are to yield to and worship. And that her protection and her preservation is more important than anything else. There's something wrong with that philosophy. It is rooted, once again, in an anti-God the, uh, atheistic premise. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, notice what it says in verse 26. I want you to realize as we read the word of God what the order ought to be. Notice what it says here in Genesis 1.26. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. The fact is, is that the earth was created for man, not man for the earth. It's very important to realize that. Earlier this year, a a 17-year-old male gorilla... And I don't even know how to spell his name, but they made sure that they incorporated and included it in the articles because they wanted to give this particular animal the perspective of being human. You've got to understand what their goal is in this. But they went ahead and they, his name was Harambi or something. I don't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. Please don't tell me if I'm wrong. Because really, to be frank with you, it doesn't matter. This particular gorilla was shot by a team at the zoo after a toddler fell into his enclosure. It made the news. It was all over. 
It was everywhere. A video emerged of that terrifying incident, and it was indeed terrifying, and it showed that the gorilla, it showed the gorilla handling this little three- or four-year-old boy. Animal rights activists and others reacted very strongly on social media, and they began to blame the, both the parents and the zoo for the death of this gorilla. Now, I, I don't know exactly. I'll be frank with you. I didn't look at all the video. But what I do know is whether or not the parent was negligent or not, the child fell into, the, into this particular cage. The child was still threatened by this particular gorilla. At any moment, it could have rolled over on it. It could have just slapped it accidentally. Whatever it might have happened. The zoo officials felt in their eyes and in, from their perspective that anything could have happened at any time, so they chose. They made a decision to kill the gorilla and save the child. There was so much outrage over an animal being killed that over 60,000 people signed a special petition calling for the boy's parents to be held accountable for the lack of supervision and negligence that caused Harambe to lose his life. Now, I, I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, we are murdering babies left and right. But let a gorilla get shot. Let a gorilla die. And all of a sudden, we got 60,000 people willing to sign their name on a special petition to hold somebody responsible. May I say that is ludicrous. That is totally unacceptable in my eyes, and I believe in God's. There's something wrong here. We have got things upside down, topsy-turvy, backwards, if you will. According to Genesis 1.26, man is to have dominion over the earth and all that is in it. Sadly, it would seem to me that the tables have been turned and now we serve the earth and all that is in it. I mean, we have, there are bills being passed all the time protecting animals. What about protecting human life? I'm just having a real problem. I don't know about you. But see, this is a direct result of a, of a movement that is rooted in atheism and says there is no God. Therefore, there's something that must maintain order in our culture and our society. And we'll say that it's nature. We put nature above. We put the earth above. And we worship it. We can't drill anymore. We can't clear off areas of the... Uh, all in the name of preserving Mother Earth. And so I thought the earth was for us, not us for the earth, according to the Bible. I'm not talking about being irresponsible. But see, the definition of irresponsibility ought to be rooted in the biblical sense, not in a politically correct sense. Now, if you had a servant today, I don't believe you'd make sure that that servant had his or her breakfast each morning. And that all their needs were met before you would relax. I don't think that's how it works. I mean, you wouldn't make sure that they were comfortable before retiring yourself. You wouldn't provide for their needs above your own. They're the servant. You're the master. The servant is to serve the master, not the other way around. And somebody can say, well, I don't agree with that whole aristocracy. I don't agree. Whatever. 
Wake up. It's going on in our world. It will continue to go on in our world forever. By the way, if you work for an employer, you are serving. And they go, come on, let's get off our high hearts. Let's quit acting like we don't understand what we're talking about. But I can guarantee you this. It's not, it's not the, the master's job to meet the needs of the servants. It's the servant's job to meet the need of the master. And if you don't understand that, watch Dalton Abbey. You'll figure it out. Now, we've gotten it mixed up today. We've gotten it mixed up. It seems that man is now serving the creation and the creature instead of the, instead of the earth serving the creator and the creation serving the creator. Nietzsche was correct. He had it all figured out. See, the presupposition, presupposition that there is no God requires that there be something greater than man by which he can be found, he can find his purpose, and he can find restraint. There has to be restraint in order for society to be orderly. So there has to be some sense of a God, something that we place above ourselves. Nietzsche understood that yeah, nature will work. Boy, I'll tell you what, we have run with it in our generation. The world is funny, aren't they? They'll tell you that they want to be free. They want to be free from God in order to express themselves and to live as they please. But in reality, the pursuit of a godless existence has only bound them all the more. God is about freedom, whether you realize that or I do. Oh, I know some of our young people run around here and they sometimes feel like, well, we can't do nothing. It's so burdensome to be a Christian and you're not allowed to hug and kiss and pet and do all that stuff. You're not allowed to go to movies and you're not allowed to run out here and, and hold hands. You're not allowed to do this and do that and all the things that the world does. Can't go to the school dance, can't listen to rock music, can't do this and can't do that. Boy, it's so difficult to be a Christian. It's so burdensome to be a Christian. You know why they believe that? Because too many times they hear it from us. And sadly enough, Christianity as a whole has abandoned any sense of biblical standards because we don't want to be bound and we are equally as guilty as the world many times by saying that being a Christian is a little bit too overboard. I'm just going to back up a little bit and experience a little bit of freedom. You're not getting freedom when you disobey God's word. You're not, you are being bound by your sin, the cords of your sin, the Bible says. There's no freedom in that. And the world has missed the boat. God's about freedom. There are moral restraints placed upon man. But each and every one of those is an attempt to protect man. On the other hand, freedom from God always leads to greater bondage. Now, there are some real things in this world. And I want to show you a couple of them. Brother Nate, stand up. Sit down. Do you know he just sat on a chair? Do you realize that chair there, this chair here, is real? It's real. I, I can have a seat on it. Well, I'll tell you what, this is real. It's real. Do you know, this pen, pen's real. 
I can write my name with it, do whatever. Even if I couldn't write my name, the pen itself is real. It's got substance, solid. I mean, it's, it's real. It's not fake. It's not pretend. It's not just nothingness. It's real. It's got mass. It's got weight to it. It's got something. It's, there's composition here. This pulpit's real. I guarantee you, if you've tried to move it, you'd know it's real. It's real. It's real. You know what else is real? This book I hold in my hand. This book is real. It's real. You know, it's called the Word of God, and it contains precepts and principles that have governed this world from its inception. It's real. I mean, this book is the byproduct of 40 writers over the period of 1,600 years. It's been the focus of so many attacks, I can't even begin to express them. Its authenticity has been attacked. Its authority has been attacked. It's been questioned in every single generation. Its pages have been burned. Its truths despised. Its source denied. And yet it still stands at... It stands heads and shoulders above every other literary composition that has ever been created. It's still on the number one bestsellers list. It's an amazing. See, the book that you and I hold in our hand today is real. It's real. This is not some idea of, of some man or woman that put it on paper. It's not just the, the compilation of some thoughts and ideas through the years. No, this is God's word and it is real. Amen. You know, everybody wants something real, don't you? You want your wife to be real. You want your husband to be real. You want your pastor to be real. You know, we, we want things to be real. We want them to be genuine. We want them to be the real deal. Not only that, but we want them to have substance. I mean, it's, Real reality. Hey, God, I'm telling you, the Word of God is real. The critics will tell us that there's no God. And one of the proofs that they'll use, as we mentioned this morning even, they'll contend that if God was really good and if God was really real, then surely He would not permit certain tragedies in our world. He would not allow difficulties to come. If He was really real, then why is He permitting this in my life or in the lives of those I love? And you know what? One may say, well, that's a good question. And I might agree with that. It is a good question. You know, when my children were very young, I'd often stand by and watch them behave recklessly. You know what I'm talking about. Kids didn't always do what they should do. And I'm not talking about being rebellious and disobedient. I'm talking about being reckless. Uh, my, my son every once in a while complains about how his knees hurt him. I still remember when he was just 14 and 13 years old, jumping off the steps in the building above, all the way down to the bottom, and almost smashing into those doors every other day. I turn around, I'm like, what are you doing? Are you stupid? <clears throat> jumping all the way down, and then him and some of the other guys in the church would take a, just a leap off there and come flying down those whole set of steps back on that back end, and wham, right down on the ground. I'd say, you're going to pay for that one day, buddy. And now he complains about his knees. And I think, well, there you go. Boy, they, they would be reckless at times. Reckless. You know how it is. You go to a, a place like 
Virginia Kendall or something where there are cliffs and you're climbing up the sides of mountains. You're doing crazy stuff. Man, you, you know, life is, I mean, your life is bigger than life itself. I mean, nothing's going to happen, right? It's reckless. Reckless. I remember my one son, very, very young at the time, and again, just a few years old, and I've mentioned this, I've told this before, but he was playing around the swimming pool, and his mom would bring him right to the edge of the water there, and then he would, you know, kind of play around, kick his feet in it, and play cautiously. She then, one time, she would allow him to step down onto the first step, and it would just come up to maybe his little knees and thighs, and he would have fun just standing around, jumping around. He still does that, but... He'd just kind of eye up myself and the other kids that were playing in the pool. I mean, he was just, he just longed to be out there with the rest of us in the deep water, so to speak. But he was too little, he was too young. I remember that same day, it was, wasn't long into that, that, that experience that he happened to be on top there and, and uh, the steps were over here. He was right on the top, standing there. We were out in the middle of that pool playing and next thing I know, he just started walking forward and went, Right into that water. Right into it. I remember my wife, she about had a heart attack. <laughs> and I, I got to admit, I'm kind of sensitive about things. And I was like, whoa. And then I stopped a second. And I just stood there. And I said, whoa, whoa, just hold on. I want this one to sink in a while. And I still remember, as he's in the water, he looks up and he's like, (laughs) he didn't know what to do. I'm sure he was screaming at the top of his lungs. And I remember just walking over very slowly. I grabbed him by the arms and I pulled him out, put him in my arms and I carried him over. He started crying. I said, no, that's enough. Sit down. I wanted him to think about some things. He said, what in the world do you want him to think about? Well, I wanted him to think about never running or rushing recklessly into anything again. He said he was just too young. He was so young. I, I still think it had an impact. I certainly know that he didn't do that again at the pool. Now, I could have rushed over there and grabbed him. Whoa, whoa, freaked out, grabbed him out, rushed him out. Uh-uh. I wanted him to have the privilege of learning a lesson. And he developed a healthy fear which would protect him the rest of his life. You know, in that same way, God permits such situations in your life and mine. You know, he does that. He allows, he allows them in our lives. Oh, they're not all pleasant by any means. But he places them there with a purpose. And although some are more painful than others, in each and every single case, there is a lesson that once learned will make us stronger and provide us with greater insight and discernment from that point on. He permits us to suffer for our own good. And that is not pleasant. But just like I permitted my son to suffer and to know fear and helplessness, God will often permit those things in our lives so that we come to that same place fear and helplessness because see when we come to that place it is then and only then that we truly 
look to him. We can talk about living by faith. But it is not faith to pay a bill when there is money in the bank. It's not faith. Most will never know what living by faith truly is. At least not in America. And that is what is destroying our Christianity here. And if you have what you need, then you must create a need in your life. You must do that. You must give beyond your means in order to have to live by faith then. You must stretch yourself in service in order to create a need of hopelessness and helplessness alone. I can't do this except you do it through me. You understand, we have to place ourselves in positions where faith is all there is. Because that, in that time, that's when God is truly able. That's when we really grow in our faith. And God permits many times, even tragedy in our life, to bring us to a place of hopelessness and helplessness, and we ultimately come to Him. And in coming to Him, we learn how great and good and wonderful He truly is. See, God is real. The Bible says, In the beginning, God created. And, and He did. He did create. God is real. I want you to consider some verses as we close tonight. Look, if you will, over the book of John, chapter 1, verse 9. Let's just turn to the book of John alone, just John today, for just a few moments, and run through a few verses. There are some true things, some real things. Notice in John 1, 9, it says, That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Turn to John 3, 33. He that hath received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. John 6.32 Then Jesus said unto them, saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. True bread. See, there are some things that are true and real today. John 7.28 Then cried Jesus, Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. Everything pointing right to God being real. Notice what it says in John 8, verse 13 and 14. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. We've got many in the world saying that today. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go. Ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. My record is true. See, he's saying I'm real. I'm real. John eight sixteen and 17, just a few verses down. 
And yet if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I and the, the Father that sent me. It is written, also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. He says, my judgment's true. My judgment's true. John 15, 1. I am the true vine. Boy, is that good. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. I'm the true vine. There's some things that are true. And there's no one, nothing more true than God Himself. Notice chapter 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Only true God. You realize there's only one true God? Well, I'll tell you what, it's not easy to take a stand on the Word of God today in a society that believes in such a pluralistic attitude toward God's. There's multiple gods, and every one of them is equal. They're all the same. Why, why do we come to that conclusion, or why do people come to that conclusion? Because in reality, we don't take our God very serious. I mean, they're not real anyway, right? So go ahead. They're all equal. They're equally false. They're equally a joke. If you need a crutch, go ahead. Use a crutch. But God... The Word of God teaches us there is only one true God. Listen, you, you can go ahead and create the God of your choosing. But when it's all said and done, there is only one true judge and one true God. And that is Him who's seated on the throne in heaven. John 19.35 And he that saw it, John 19.35 And he that saw it, bear record and his reward is true <laughs> he knoweth that he saith and and he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe i tell you what we have a record that is true Amen. Amen. john 21 24 this is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things we know that his testimony is true. So John says, listen, this testimony is true. What I've shared with you is true. You know what he shared with us was the reality of God. God is real. He's real. As we enter into 2017, it is imperative and it is so vital and important that we give our allegiance to none other but him. We don't buy into manufactured gods, that we don't somehow disregard Him and elevate other things or people. Let's make sure that He is always first, that He is always God, because He is always real. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. It says, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh when thou shalt say, 
I have no pleasure in them. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. Don't forget about him in this coming year. Don't neglect him in this coming year. Don't be distracted by the world and the things of this world. Don't allow yourself to do that. They will seem profitable for now. As you sit in this real chair and as you enjoy real pens and as you have a good time with real money and going real places, I want you to know that those real things now will mean nothing when we stand before only Him who's the real God. Then we'll wish that we had placed Him where He belongs. Then nothing else will matter. Make a good decision. Do not rush. Count the cost. But if you choose Him, then you stick with Him. And you put Him where He belongs. He's real. I'll tell you what. Nietzsche asked the question, is God dead? The answer is what? Of course not. He is alive and well today. Aren't you glad you serve the living God? I mean, you're here tonight. I, I, I want you to understand something, though. No matter how faithful you are today, no matter how great your faith is today, I want you to realize that there are elements that will do all they can to cause you to doubt and to doubt Him. Don't ever come to the place where you are so comfortable with your faith that you do not remember God is real. Because I promise you, circumstance and demonic forces will do all they can to get you to question that. Don't be surprised when you find yourself there. It will come if you live faithfully for Him. But never doubt for a moment. Always hold dear and near to your heart the reality that Jesus Christ is real. He lives today. And we will close our eyes in death or we will be raptured out of here and we will be in His presence. Is God dead? No. He is alive and well. God is real. And there are some things that are real. Don't forget about the Word of God and the God of creation and the Master of your salvation as we go forward in 2017. Father, we come to you. We thank you for some real things. and We thank you for a Bible that's real. We thank you, Father, for a testimony that's real. And 